Good evening, everyone. Welcome back if you are back. Welcome if you are here for the first time. And greetings to all of those who are watching the live stream. Where's the camera? The mass one's up there. Are you looking at me there? <laughs> Wherever you are, online. Nice to be with you. Now, last time we left the garden. It took us time, but so it should, because leaving home is always hard. And the fact of the matter is, home for us is the garden. We are not desert creatures. We find ourselves in the desert, but we're not native to the desert, we're native to the garden. I remember once being in the desert, just south of Jerusalem, the Negev Desert, and it was that experience that taught me if I needed teaching, that I and we are not desert creatures because we had to drink nine litres of water a day just to survive. And in order to drink and retain nine litres of water, we had to drink all kinds, uh, eat all kinds of extraordinary food that was either very salty or very sweet because without salt and sugar to retain the water, well, you know what happens. So the desert isn't home. We have to do all sorts of extraordinary things. That's not nine litres of water, it's one cup. <laughs> so we have left our homeland. And one of the great threats in the Christian life is amnesia. We can forget that paradise is our true home and we can forget our mother tongue. You see, I think sometimes we're like someone who's had a stroke. Some of you might have had a stroke. Now, after a stroke, you have to relearn the most basic skills in human life, like your mother tongue. So sin is a stroke. That's the effect it has on the human being. So we have to relearn those things that are most natural to us, like our mother tongue. So if paradise is our true homeland, our mother tongue is the language of paradise. But what is the language of paradise? Let's call it doxology. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. In that sense, the church is a great language school. Morning prayer in the church, for instance, is traditionally called lords, which means praises. In other words, it doesn't matter how you feel when you crawl out of bed in the morning. You might feel miserable, lamentable. What does the church say? Come and practice your mother tongue. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The language of praise the language of glorifying God, the language of ecstasy. There it is. Paradise is the home of ecstasy and you and I were created for the ecstasy of God. You know what the word ecstasy means? Ecstasis in the Greek. Going out of yourself. Self-transcendence. Perfect self-giving. That's God. God is perfect ecstasy. And for that ecstasy we were created, which is why paradise is our true home and why the language of paradise, the language of ecstasy, is our mother tongue. And don't forget it. 
Forget is one of the key words for sin in the Bible. Amnesia stalks us on the journey of faith. Spiritual Alzheimer's. Beware. Now, we saw the first story of the human being outside the garden, you remember? And it was the story of Cain and Abel, remembering too. Here I'm going to shake my battered old Bible. This is your life. I've said it before, I say it again. You will not understand or really hear the word that God wants to speak to you from the pages of Scripture unless you understand that. If you think this is once upon a time, then don't expect to hear any living word bounce up at you from the page. But if you, if you can understand what it means to say, this is your life, then the word of God can come at you like a blowtorch from the page of Scripture. At the end of that great story, the first image of the human being outside the garden in the desert where brother kills brother. At the end of that great story, we were told that Cain went off to live in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And I told you that Nod had nothing to do with 40 winks. Nod in Hebrew means wandering. So Cain, the human being, killer of his brother, rebel against God, goes off to live in the land of wandering. And at that point, the great task of the human being is to turn all our wandering into journeying. And the Bible will tell the great story of the human being's journey back to paradise, our journey home. Now, journey. It's the root metaphor of the whole of Scripture. There are many ways of describing the Bible, but one is to say that it is the greatest bag of metaphors the world has ever known and ever will know. What do I mean by a metaphor? A metaphor, and the great poets, of course, are the great makers of metaphor. It's a very basic mode of human speech that links two things together, sort of lashes them together, two things that normally aren't associated at all. Uh, if I said, George is a lion, well, you could say to me, he's not a lion, he's a human being. But that's not the point of what I'm saying. And it's not saying, it, it's a stronger statement than George is like a lion. George is a lion. So it joins two things together in a way that induces what they call imaginative shock and then new insight. So the Bible does this all the time in our understanding of the human being, of who God is, and of how God and the human being relate. It takes conventional notions and, and, and combines conventional, clapped-out notions of who God is, the human being is, how they relate, puts a bomb under those conventional understandings only in order to generate new and brilliant and revolutionary insight into who God, the real God, really is. Who the human being really is, beyond all the conventional claptrap. And how God and the human being relate. The Bible is revolutionary on all of that and we've seen it. The revolution, created not to be a slave, but to be a co-creator. 
and the chief weapon in generating this new and revolutionary insight is what I'm calling metaphor. And the root metaphor at the heart of them all is the metaphor of the journey. That's why on just about every page of scripture you find journey stories, even if you think yourself now, Think of all the journey stories in the scripture. Old Testament, New Testament, it doesn't matter. There are great journeys, there are small journeys, and so on. Now, what's going on? When I say journey is the root metaphor, what I'm saying is it's the fundamental way in which the Bible chooses to talk about who God is, who we are, and how we relate. What is a journey? A journey is a movement from one location to another. But it's not like wandering because it's a purposeful movement from one location to another. It has direction. Wandering just goes round and round and round and round. A journey doesn't. It has a direction, a purpose, a goal. It knows where it's going. So, a journey is a dislocation, quite literally. A move from one location to another. I came from New Farm to the city this evening. It was a a dislocation. Now, when I was about 14, I dislocated my ankle when I was playing football. You can probably tell. And it was very painful. It was a wrench. And that's the way the Bible sees God. God is a dislocating God. The real God, according to Scripture, never leaves us where and as we are. If you encounter what you think is God, and God says, just stay right where you are and as you are, take it from me, you're not meeting the real God, you're meeting one of the false gods. The real God is a dislocating God moving us from where and as we are to somewhere else. Why? In order to lead us home to the garden. For us to come home to the garden involves a dislocation. It involves a wrench. It can be painful. But it all has a purpose. It's not purposeless pain. Meaningless dislocation. It all has a purpose and the purpose is to lead us home to the garden of ecstasy. Pain is not its purpose, ecstasy is. Therefore, once Cain goes off to live in the land of Nod, east of Eden, the great journey home begins. But it doesn't begin immediately because... From Genesis chapter 4, where we find the story of Cain and Abel, right down to Genesis chapter 11 that finishes with the story of the Tower of Babel, you know the story, what you find is a great arc of storytelling. And what it's describing is the curse of sin. Sin that begins as personal... Eve and then Adam personally take the fruit of the forbidden tree and go chomp 
It's personal. I choose to chomp. But the ripples of sin go further because that which begins as personal becomes familial. Cain kills his brother. It's not just personal then, it's familial. Into the family. But by the time you get to the story of the Tower of Babel, the ripples have gone out much further. Because the story of the Tower of Babel ends with an image of universal chaos. So the ripples of sin that begin as personal and become familial end up being universal. That's the rhythm of sin and the curse which sin brings. It becomes a personal curse. I am cursed, familial, my family is cursed. And it becomes universal. The whole world drowns in the curse that sin brings. Where God as creator brought order out of chaos, what does sin do? The exact opposite. It kind of rolls the film back. And we go back from order, the magnificent order of the divine harmonics. We go from that back into the chaos, dark, empty, chaotic. You see the way it works? The whole of creation, it's an uncreating, the story of sin and its curse. And by the time we get back to the dark, empty and chaotic where the biblical story began, we are given one image of the darkness, the emptiness and the chaos. And it's the image of the barren womb. Because at the very end of chapter 11, this great arc of storytelling about sin, we're told this, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. In the Bible, wherever you find repetition, it is deliberate and expressive. Uh, Writing was hard work, and they didn't repeat unless they wanted to. So if Sarai was barren, that would have been enough. She was barren. And then it says she had no child. Well, why bother? To rub our nose in the fact of the barren womb of the woman, which is what sin makes of the the, the cosmos that God wants to teem with life. What does sin do? Turn it into a barren womb. So there is Sarai who will become Sarah. The barren womb is the great image of where sin takes us. Dark, empty, chaotic. But it's precisely there that the plan of God begins to bring us home. And here I come to one of the great hinges of the biblical story. In Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, the promise made to Abraham. Fantastic passage that says so much in such a short space. Just by the way, the Bible revels in an art of compression. It loves to say so much 
by saying so little. Again, writing was hard work. It was also very expensive. So they learned to compress. It's a bit like doing a tweet. You've only got 140 characters. But the, 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 the constraint becomes creative. Well, it can, at least, in Twitter. It certainly does, and magnific- magnificently so in the scripture. So, so don't be fooled into thinking that compression in the Bible means saying less. It means saying more. Follow me now. With this promise made to Abraham at the beginning of Genesis chapter 12, another great, the great arc, really, of the biblical story begins. And where does it begin? In the barren womb. I'll read the verses to you. The Lord said to Abraham, Abram, hasn't got his new name yet. Now just by the way, who is this God? He just pops out of nowhere. This was, Abraham knew a world that was full of gods. And this God doesn't introduce himself. Just pops out of nowhere and speaks to this well-to-do merchant who plied his trade around what they call the Fertile Crescent, up through modern Iraq, around up to the north where it was still Greenland, and down the coastal plain, the way of the sea as it's called. Abraham was a successful businessman. And out of the blue, this god just bursts and has, have a listen to what he says. Go from your country and your, your family and your father's house to the land that I will show you. You see what I mean by dislocating God? He doesn't say, excuse me, Abraham, I have something to put to you. It's an imperative, we say. Go. There's an urgency about it. It's not a discussion. It's a command. Go. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who curses you I will curse and by you all the families of the earth shall bless themselves. There it is, the hinge of the whole Bible. Now, The promise that God makes is, frankly, ridiculous. Why? Because it seems to be impossible. But the only thing the God of the Bible is good at is the seemingly impossible. Why do I say impossible? He says, I'm going to give you a land. See, Abraham, again, he is the human being, you and me. Abraham was the man who had everything, but in the end he had nothing. What do I mean by he had everything? He had money. He was a success commercially. He had wives. Well, he didn't have children. You see, he didn't have the two things that mattered ultimately in the culture that he knew. He didn't have his own children, offspring, and he didn't have his own land. And the understanding culturally was that you lived on beyond death in two things, your patrimonial land and your offspring. 
Therefore, Abraham appears in the biblical story at this point as the human being who lives in the shadow of death. The human being in whose life death will have the last word. Death reigns over all. And here is this God who says, no, there is a life that's bigger than death. And I'll show you that there is. It's the life of the garden, by the way. I'll show you that there is a life that's bigger than death, Abraham, human being. Because I'm going to give you a land. But Abraham could have said, but all the land is taken. It still is in the Middle East, have you noticed? All the land is taken. God says, I'm going to give you a land of your own. But it's all taken. It can't happen. But it gets worse because I'm going to make you a great nation. You see, what's he saying? Sarah's going to have a child. It can't happen. She's barren. So the promise is impossible. So here you've got this dislocating God saying, go, doesn't even say where. So he doesn't give Abraham a road map. This is crucial. And remember, we're dealing with a businessman who knew which side the bread was buttered on. Who knew a a good deal from a bad deal. He doesn't get a road map. He just said, God says, follow me. Keep your eye on me. I am your GPS. Keep your ear on me. Don't take the road map and go off on your own. All right, go to a land that I will show you, like a GPS, and then I will make you the father of a whole nation. She's going to have a baby. And then there's the marvellous story that comes a little later in the book of Genesis where the angel of God, the messenger of God, appears to Abraham. And Sarah's listening, you know the story, listening at the flap of the tent. She's sharp-eared, Sarah. And the messenger of God says, next year, at this time, your wife will have a child in her arms. Sarah thinks it's a great joke. And who can blame her? She laughs with cynicism. And the angel turns to her and says, you laugh. And Sarah says, I did not. Yes, you did, says the angel. But then a year later, she has the child in her arms against all the odds. And what does she call the boy? Yitzhak, Isaac, which means laughter. The laughter of cynicism turns to the laughter of joy as she holds the improbable baby in her arms. So the land and the child are symbolic of a life that's bigger than death. And that's the great promise that this God who comes from nowhere makes. But to attain that life you must be dislocated, you must leave all that is familiar. Even if that's painful, it's the price you must pay. 
And because this is a promise of a life that's bigger than death, you see how the promise really can only be fulfilled once Jesus Christ rises from the dead. This is the fantastic coherence of the biblical story. It's not just bits and pieces all over the place, like a dog's breakfast. There's a magnificent coherence to the biblical story. It's all put together with such exquisite care and skill by our forebears in faith. I sometimes think it's like a great mosaic. You would have seen the great mosaics in other parts of the world. The mosaic artist starts with a pile of what look to be just little stones on the floor. And you look at that, it's just a pile of rubble. But then with the superb skill of the master craftsman, the mosaic artist puts the little pieces together, the little fragments of stone together, and eventually the great mosaic is done. You stand back and you say, wow, I thought it was just a pile of rubble. And look at what we have now. This great mosaic, the Bible's like that. All the bits and pieces through thousands of years have been gathered up and put together in this magnificent mosaic. If you're too close to it, sometimes you don't see. You might have to stand back a bit. Or sometimes you have to put your coin into the machine that gives you light to see it. But then if you're in the right place with the right light, you say, and that's what the scripture is like. At this point, let me reflect more broadly upon why the Bible, put together with great skill and care, why the Bible as a whole is cast as a story, and it is very deliberately. It was a conscious choice that our forebears in faith made when they put the Bible together. The Quran, by contrast, is not cast as a story. It's not that everything in the Bible is story. There's all kinds of other elements, law codes, uh, poetry, everything known to the ancient world. But it's all set within a narrative framework. It's all cast as a story. And the question is why? To answer that question, you have to ask, why is the human being, by which again I mean you and me, why is the human being addicted to story? Because you are, I can tell. It's why we read newspapers, go online, watch the television news. We love stories. And journalists and writers, basically, are just storytellers. They feed our, our human addiction to story. Now, to answer the question, why are we addicted to story? Little people are, big people are, young people are, old people are, black people are, white people are. 10,000 years ago, they were addicted to story. And one thing we can say for certain, in 10,000 years' time, the human being will be no less addicted to story. We're story creatures. Now, why? What are the simple elements, the simplest elements of a story? To have a story of any kind, simple or complex, you need certain elements. You need, well, you need a beginning and you need an end. Uh, once upon a time is a common beginning 
in our culture, not in the Bible. The Bible never says once upon a time because it's in this time, not some other time. This time, here and now. And the, the common ending in our culture is, and they lived happily ever after. Well, you never find they lived happily ever after in the Bible. Why? Because they don't. The Bible's an incredibly sad book in some ways, but it's also the most brilliantly jubilant book in another way. The Bible takes you down into all the sadness, blood, sweat and tears everywhere, congealed into a book. It takes you down into the tragedy of the world. Why? So that there you can discover the joy. It's like taking you down into the dark, the empty and the chaotic. Why? Not to torment you, because only at the darkness, in the darkness will you find the light. Only in the emptiness will you find the fullness. Only in the chaos will you find the, the magnificent ordering of God. That's the way it works. Okay, we've got a beginning. We've got an end. What do you have to do to have a story? You've got to join the beginning and the end together. You can't do it too simply and obviously because your readers would go to sleep. You can't make it all too complex joining the beginning and the end because that would be overwhelming and again you would read, lose your readers' interest. So a good storyteller has the right combination of simplicity and complexity, building suspense, stirring questions in you, the reader. So the storyline goes up and down, in and out, round about, but eventually there is resolution. The story comes to an end, even if they don't live happily ever after. Now, what am I saying? The story is always a journey from beginning to end, but it moves through chaos. A good story will build into it the chaos of human life and human history. But in the end, when there is resolution, a good story brings order. Order out of chaos. In the world of story, the last word belongs not to chaos, but to order. It sounds like what God did in the beginning, and it is. Storytelling shares in the creativity of God. Because what story does, and this is why we're addicted to it, story does proclaim the hope that's born of the vision of an order born out of chaos. The chaos is there always. The mess, the ins and outs, ups and downs, setbacks, God knows what, all that goes to make up a good story. But they don't have the last word. Therefore, the power of story is it, it, it nourishes our deepest hope and it subverts our deepest fear. What is our deepest fear? That the last word in human life will go to chaos. What is our deepest hope? That the last word in human life will go not to chaos but to order, the ordering of God. Hope. So the human being is addicted to story because we're addicted to hope. We're hope creatures. And the whole Bible 
is cast as a story because it's one great proclamation of a hope that is born always and only out of what seems to be absolutely hopeless, like Sarah's womb. Hope. Hope, genuine hope, not cosmetic hope, that's cheap. Genuine, costly hope isn't native to this planet. It's exotic. It came from somewhere else and the somewhere else is God. It has to be given to us. It has to be revealed to us. And the final hope is the hope of Easter. But the whole of scripture is one great jubilant cry of hope born out of hopelessness. You may have heard the name of Elie Wiesel. Elie Wiesel had a less than privileged upbringing. He spent much of it in Auschwitz. And he was the only member of his family who survived the death camp. And when he finally left Auschwitz, he made a vow to himself that he would never speak or write. He became a well-known writer. He would never speak or write of what he had seen in the death camp the hellhole of Auschwitz. But as life went on, some of his friends prevailed upon Wiesel to take up the pen, Wiesel's Jewish, to obey the deepest impulses of the Bible he had in his bones, to take up the pen and start telling the story. And he wrote a little book in French called La Nuit, it's called Night in English, It's not much more than a hundred pages long, but when you finish reading it, you feel as if you've read War and Peace. At one point, he tells the story of the, the, the train arriving at Auschwitz at night, and in the distance they see these great leaping flames, and as they move closer to the flames, they realize that what is happening, and this is hell, literally, is that live babies are being thrown into the fire. And at the sight of that, he says, there was an old rabbi next to me with a big fur hat and the side locks. And Wiesel says he simply, his empty eyes raised to heaven and he said, this is the end. God has abandoned us. You see the death of hope? Now, by the end of Wiesel's book, there's no cheap hope. There's just the tiniest pinhead of a, of a dull grey light. There might be some ember in the ash heaps of Auschwitz. But what that, bo that book is made possible only by the Bible. Again, he was Jewish. Karen Blixen, out of Africa once said, any human sorrow or pain is bearable if I can tell a story about it. In some ways that's the whole basis of counselling in Western cultures. Tell me your story. Because you see, a lot of people don't, don't think of their life as a story. It's just meaningless and unrelated episodes. It has no shape, no purpose, no direction. Tell me your story, because in telling me your story, you may see the shape, 
the purpose, the direction, and you may find hope born out of hopelessness. So any human pain or sorrow is bearable. It's not necessarily comprehensible, the mystery of evil. But it is bearable if we can tell a story about it. And again, Blixen is articulating the deepest impulses of the scripture. I mentioned earlier that the Bible never says they lived happily ever after. It never tells us the story of our final return to the garden. It looks towards that end, but the Bible as a whole is essentially and deliberately an unfinished story. And the question is why? You have all kinds of unfinished stories. At the very end of the Christian Bible, we have the visionary John saying, the spirit and the bride say, come. Come, Lord Jesus, which looks to the end but doesn't actually recount the end. It's not finished. So the Bible is deliberately an unfinished story. Why? Because we haven't made it yet. The Acts of the Apostles is another classic case where we're told at the end of the Acts of the Apostles that Paul lived under house arrest in Rome for two years and preached the gospel quite unhindered. Well, didn't Luke know about Paul's beheading in Rome? Of course he did. But he doesn't tell the ending. He just leaves the story unfinished up there. Again, the Gospel of Mark is perhaps the greatest non-ending in all of literature. The women, you remember, go to the tomb. And uh, there they meet the heavenly messenger. And they're given very precise instructions. Go and tell the disciples that Jesus will will meet them, risen from the dead, will meet them up in Galilee. There they are to go and meet him. It couldn't be more precise what the women are told to do. And what are we told the women do? They, they, went, they ran away and said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. It's not an ending. First of all, they're disobedient. But they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. In fact, they must have got beyond their fear and failure... Because how else would we know the story? They must have told their story. But that's not what Mark says. Mark implies an ending, but doesn't actually recount it. There are many, many examples of stories that are not finished in the scripture. Why? Because we are still on the way. How many possible endings of scripture are there? Infinite numbers. In a sense, our great task is to finish the scripture in your life and in the life of the church. Sometimes people quote the Bible, even on a thing like marriage and divorce. Here I think of the Synod, which is Uh, to be held in Rome later this year. Sometimes people just quote the texts found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke 
as if that finishes all discussion, clinches the argument. But in fact, the Bible doesn't work like that. The Bible rarely, if ever, concludes an argument. The Bible almost always starts a conversation and insists, and here I begin to sound rabbinic, insists that the conversation must continue. The endless finishing of the scripture, every ending provisional and looking for another one. That the, that, that the great conversation that we call the interpretation of the Bible must go on and on and on because the Bible only lives by interpretation. If we stop reading the Bible, if we stop interpreting the Bible, finishing the story in that sense, then in one very real sense, the scripture dies. The rabbis say, in fact, that it's not interpretation which is a parasite on the text, but the text which is a parasite on interpretation. So Holy Writ, according to the rabbis, lives by interpretation. And that's why the Catholic Church insists upon tradition, not just scripture. We don't accept the approach of what they call sola scriptura. We say scripture, yes, absolutely crucial as the word of God, but the word of God must be interpreted, it must be read, it must be finished again and again and again. And that's all tradition means. It's not something you find in a museum. Tradition comes when you simply read the scripture. Read it as your life and finish it in your life and in the life of the church. The final thing I would say tonight, and we will continue with our reflection upon biblical story when we meet next time, a final thing I would say is that this story is absolutely intended for everybody. If you think of the great stories of the scripture, a child can respond to them. I remember being fascinated by not just the stories, also the pictures in the big family Bible we had in, at home. So even a kid can get something from these biblical stories. But no one gets everything. Not the greatest scholar in the world will get everything. So everyone gets something, but no one gets everything. In other words, this, this is not elite literature. The Bible was written for people like us. Not high-powered scholars, but you don't have to be. There, there are people who have no degrees, uh, people of great simplicity and of great faith, I hasten to add, who can be superb readers of the Bible. They can listen to and hear the word that God speaks in a way perhaps the scholars never can. But this was literature written for everybody. No one is excluded because the whole community 
had to learn what biblical story had to teach. In other words, there is no human being for whom hope is not absolutely life. There are many things we can live without. Many, many things. But one thing the human being cannot live without is is hope. And you see, when we talk of a secular world, the real problem is that very often it's a hopeless world. It's one-dimensional. And the human being is never one-dimensional. So if we talk about living biblically in a secular world, that's what we're talking about. It's got nothing to do with narrowly religious ideology or some kind of political program or moral code or ethical norms or philosophy. I'm not saying those sorts of things are totally unimportant. But it's not what Scripture's about. Again, keep in mind that the Bible was born of two catastrophes when the whole show seemed to have collapsed. It is the end. God has abandoned us at the time of the exile and with the destruction of Jerusalem. The Old Testament born of the catastrophe of the exile, the New Testament born of the catastrophe of the destruction. And in the midst of that catastrophe, what did they do? They got their noses like Wiesel over the ash heap. And they rummaged through the ash heap asking the question, is there any hope? Is there a future? And in the ash heaps they found these little embers that became the, the great conflagration that is the scripture. So, so living biblically in a secular world is really to live as bearers of hope. Again, not the cheap, cosmetic, ultimately illusory hopes that are everywhere. That just vanish with the dawn. We're talking about a hope, one, that death does not have the last word. The last word in your life and in our life and the life of the planet personal, familial, universal. The last word belongs to life, not death. The last word doesn't belong to sadness, sorrow and depression. The last word belongs to ecstasy, Easter joy. And the last word belongs not to the desert, where we are, but to the garden and the dazzling vision of that. So to live biblically in a secular world is simply to be men and women of hope in the midst of everything that seems to be hopeless. At that point, I will conclude this evening but I signal already that this reflection upon biblical storytelling crucial element of understanding the scripture and understanding what it does mean to live biblically now we will, uh, we will continue to explore um, the way in which story functions in the scripture because again the way the stories are told is a crucial part of the message that the scripture seeks to give